I was a youth pastor for years before I became a pastor. And probably the greatest reset moment that I had uh, was when I was in Alex's shoes as a youth pastor. Not the same shoes. What kind of shoes you wear, man? Yeah, I never wore shoes like that. I was never that cool. Um, but I, I had a, a problem. Uh, my problem was that as I was um, working under the authority that was above me, uh, I was always trying to prove myself. I had a real poverty of significance. And so I was always trying to show that I was important. I was always trying to show that I was worthy to have around. And the way that I would do that is I would cross the line of crazy games and stuff uh, like that so that a lot of people would want to come because I thought for some reason like numbers equated value and worth in youth ministry. Um, And that was a real tragic misunderstanding. Uh, But I got in trouble a lot for that. And the extreme trouble of that was, you know, one evening when a, a, a freshman girl had a new sweater that her grandparents her, given her, and by the end of the night, she had fish blood all over her new sweater and went home, and it just wasn't a happy thing at all. And I didn't handle it well with the parents at all. It was publicly embarrassing. The game went well, just a side note. Uh, my, hand, my handling of the situation went really poorly. I was super immature. I was an embarrassment to myself and my supervisor. And when I uh, became uh, soft-hearted enough to be aware of that, I remember this reset moment. And I don't know if you've ever had this, but if it wasn't for uh, this, this kind of grace, I wouldn't be standing here today. I sat across from a supervisor. They were looking me in the eye, uh, and I was explaining to them what happened. It, they knew what happened. They had helped deal with parents. We had helped reimburse for sweaters, all this stuff. Uh, and I just said, I want you to know I'm really sorry. And I'll never forget what the supervisor said. They looked at me, and they said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I was like, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I went through my failure, my shortcomings, my immaturity again and again. And my supervisor said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I was like, ah, I get it. You've forgiven me. (laughs) I have no idea what you're talking about. That was so powerful for me. In a moment of shame, looking at a supervisor and experiencing this reality that you don't have anything left that you owe me. You're completely forgiven. You have, a, you have full empowerment, all my endorsement to start over and begin freshly. That really transformed who I am. And when we talk about a reset moment through understanding the atonement, redemption, and looking at Leviticus 16, it's exactly what we're talking about you know you have a desire to begin again for those consequences of our decision to be removed and to have that fresh start in a new beginning. Now, the book of Leviticus can be a real roadblock. We encourage you to try to read through the Bible. Uh, We have one-year plans, two-year plans, three-year plans, four-year plans uh, that uh, my wife and I are are helping any way we can get you to go through the Bible. But oftentimes, people get to Leviticus, and they say, this is a real burden. This book is way out there. And they are right a little bit. But the original people who heard the words of Moses from Leviticus actually saw it as a blessing. And when you go to your groups, we're going to give you some good resources, some fun ones. Um, They're going to help you engage this book as a whole. But we're going to look at a specific aspect of Leviticus that actually unlocks the whole narrative. 
The book of Leviticus has a larger redemptive historical context. In the book of Genesis, God made a covenant with his people, Abraham. He was committed to them. In the book of Exodus, that covenant that came with promises and purpose actually was reinforced through the person of Moses. It was built upon. It was more clearly defined. It was enhanced. And as soon as that covenant, the agreement that God made with his people and guaranteed by his word was reinforced through the Mosaic covenant, God's people broke it. And by the end of Exodus, you read this beautiful narrative of the tabernacle and temple, and you're wondering, are God's people ever going to really appreciate the benefit of being in fellowship with God? And Leviticus is this invitation to that, because the first verse of Leviticus, if you study it, it is actually an invitation of God speaking to Moses from the tent, the tabernacle that they had met in, that they had built. And he's inviting them to come back and to have fellowship with them. And then by the time you get to Numbers, <laughs> it's fascinating, Numbers 1.1, it actually begins with Moses meeting with God in the tent. So somehow, this holy God, who's also just and good and loving, has made a way possible for his people to have a restart, a forgiveness for their sin on the one hand, and an opportunity to begin again on another. Now, the book of Leviticus has all kinds of ceremonial law and, and situationally specific uh, ceremonies uh, that are going to be related to sacrifice and offerings, and it's, it's not even worth going into. But the book, uh, the chapter 16 comes right after a section on what it means to be clean and unclean, pure or impure. And as we were planning this um, ebb and flow, our whole goal this semester is really just to learn what we don't know and to come up with a system and structure that's best uh, for y'all's discipleship and our connection with one another. But when we came up with this in June, we had no idea that today is actually the Jewish High Holy Day of the Day of Atonement. It's Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur is like the Easter for, for your Jewish friends. And they celebrate exactly what we're going to talk about. It's fascinating. We had, we had no idea. And we're going to see that there's really only hope for the fulfillment in the atonement through the work of Christ. Now, we're going to start, just read part of this. We're just going to read verses 15 to 22 and then 34. And we're going to focus on two goats. There's two goats, there's one people, and there's one purpose in this, all right? So hear the word of God beginning at verse 15. It should be on your screen as well. Then he, that is the, the high priest, shall kill the goat of the sin offering. That's for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all of their sins. And so he, that's a high priest, shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells for them in the midst of their uncleanliness. The tent of meeting, that's where God wanted to meet with his people, even in the midst of their uncleanliness. Verse 17. 
No one may be in the tent of the meeting from the time that the high priest enters and makes atonement in the holy place until he comes out and he makes atonement for himself and for his house and to the go, to, go to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it to consecrate it from its uncleanliness of all the people of Israel. Verse 20. And when he, that's the high priest, has made an end of the atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat. There's two goats. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all of the iniquities of the people of Israel and all of the transgressions and all of their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it out into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all of the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. <laughs> That's familiar language, right? <laughs> I mean, come on. Our first endeavor as we approach God's word is to make observations. And observations in the book of Leviticus are easy. All kinds of questions, right? What is a sin offering? Why do we need to make a sin offering? Why is atonement? What is atonement? Oh, this seems like a cult activity, this whole narrative that I just read. It also seems like something from like a low-budget Halloween movie. What am I reading and what does it mean to me? Is this for real? Why is there so much blood? What did the goats ever do to deserve to die, right? Were they bad? <laughs> you like that? Ah, dad joke. I worked it in. Got to work in a dad joke. I know, I know. Seriously, that was horrible. It was actually, that was probably the imitation of a wrong animal. If there's any uh, agricultural folks out there, it's probably more of a sheep than a goat, right? Yeah, who knows? But Jesus will be able to tell a difference in the end, uh, Matthew 25. Here's the deal. We can get really deep in this, and you can spend hours and hours in your observation, but our hope is that we take a 30,000-foot view and that we look down and really address the opportunity, the invitation of atonement. What is atonement? Repeated again and again multiple times in this chapter, and particularly in the pericope that we just read. A reparation for your sin. That is, that your sin has been paid for. That there is some sort of removal and a cleansing of your sin. Now the two goats in the narrative, they actually help us understand the double nature of atonement. Here, let me make a point of identification real quick. All of us understand the reality of our own sin struggles and the desire that hey, we have to want to clean ourselves off. We just don't have the ability to do it. There's no way to cleanse us, cleanse ourselves, to make ourselves right, and to break the consequences of sin. I was reminded of this in, a, in an image that I've used before, that I use regularly. It happened, and I have dad jokes because I'm a dad, and I have a kid. And one of our reset groups, we've got five reset groups right now. One of them is young families. Uh, they get married, and little babies start coming. And it's, it, it, nothing changes when you have kids. Your sleep patterns, your finances, your social life, it's all the same except everything changes. And I remember our first kid, I won't tell you which one it was, <laughs> or did I just do that? Uh, they were napping, and uh, my wife and I were in the room, and it was time for the baby to get up. 
And my wife, Lisa, said, hey, can you go get Lauren up? I said, sure, no problem. So I started walking halfway down the hall of a very small home that we lived in at the time. It was like 820 square feet. And I smelled something that they just smelled like a dead, rotten gorilla cork. I mean, it was just horrible. And I started walking towards the door a little more, and it got worse and worse. And I had no idea what was on the other side of this door, except I knew my daughter was snapping in there. And when I opened the door, my daughter was standing in her crib, uh, and she had just gone to the bathroom to such an extent that it had come all out of her diaper. And she had decided that she was going to try to wipe it off her body. And in the process, had wiped it all over her body and all over the sheets and all over the wall. So I did, you know, what every loving father does. And loving husband, I closed the door and I said, Lisa, I think you need to, you need to get Lauren up. It's your turn. Didn't do that. We had to do what Lauren couldn't do for herself. That a loving father would come in and take Lauren and clean her off and embrace her, cleanse her, clean her walls, her crib, her bed sheets, to do something that she couldn't do for herself that came from a loving father. That's the reality of atonement, of what our loving Heavenly Father has done for us. Now, if you look at the, at the movement of the text, you see that there's a goat killed. And that first goat that's killed it, it's, it takes the penalty for sin. The, the wages of sin is death. That our sin deserves death. And then the blood from that goat is take, taken and it's sprinkled all over the place. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. In the ceremonial provision, the people of God had faith that the blood would actually bring cleansing and set apart the tent of meeting so that there could be access of God's people to be in relationship with God. And in the second goat, what you read is that Aaron takes the second goat, and there should be a picture of it behind me. This is, a, this is a, one of the images. I like this painting of a scapegoat. And he actually puts both hands on the head of the goat, and he confesses, you'll see this repeated word, all of the sins of all of the people and all of the nation and they put it on the hands of the goat in line with Psalm 32 verse 5 confessing our sins and in 1 John 1 9 the invitation that if we confess our sins God is faithful and just to not only forgive us of our sins but purify us of all unrighteousness the goat that bears all of the sin is actually sent out into the wilderness. The death of the first goat makes forgiveness possible. The death of the second goat makes cleansing possible. Now, let me tell you, this story may seem distant to you, but you actually refer to it all the time. Have you ever heard of the phrase scapegoat? That person is a scapegoat. They're taking all the blame so that everybody else goes free. That phrase comes from this passage. And what the Bible teaches us is that atonement is close to the heart of your father, your heavenly father, because he longs to be in relationship with you. And he's a holy, pure God who is just, so sin has to be paid for. There must be blood. The goat dies. But he's also 
cannot have fellowship with sin and impurity, so the sin must be removed. So the goat is sent off, the scapegoat. You get the paradigm? And when you read in preparation for your next group, Hebrews chapter 9 in verse chapter 10 illustrate explicitly, not yet, not yet, that this is clearly fulfilled in the person of Christ. Only Christ was our true sin bearer, and he removed sin from us. But I want to highlight how God's heart for you, his people, runs all the way through Scripture. Psalm 103, verse 12. God says that I will remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. Why is that significant? Because if you start going north, eventually you're going to go south. But if you start going east, you'll never hit west. You'll always keep going east. Did you know that? So when your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west, it's infinite. The scapegoat takes the sins completely away. Isaiah Chapter 38, verse 17 says that God has taken your sins and he has put them behind his back. He can't even see them anymore. Now this is really revolutionary in a reset because you don't believe that about God. You believe that God keeps a record of your wrongs and somehow he's still punishing you. But when you understand atonement, you understand Jesus Christ took all of our punishment for us and we, he doesn't even see our sin. He gives us Christ's righteousness. It doesn't mean he doesn't discipline us. But in Math, Micah chapter 7, verse 19, I love the prophet's word. He, he says that God has taken our sin and he's hurled it into the depths of the sea. Gone. Corey Tim Boom will add that God has also put up a sign that says no fishing, right? You just can't get them back. Isaiah 43, 25, the God explicitly says that he remembers your sin no more. He remembers your sin no more. It's as if you go to confess your sin to God and he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. Jeremiah 31, 34, when it talks about the new covenant, explicitly it's promised that in God's provision, sins can be forgiven. In Romans 8.1, it says that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation. When you're in Christ, the one who paid for our sins to be forgiven, he died, and then he removed our sins, the scapegoat, there is no opportunity for you to be convicted. You can't be interrogated. The accuser's saying, look at what this person has done. Look at their thoughts. Look at their action. And the accuser is trying to help make you feel shame. But the father who, and the son who is a just judge says, I don't know what you're talking about in Christ. You're forgiven. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us how. That Christ, he knew no sin. He was perfect. He became sin so that you can become the righteousness of God. The scapegoat was the Lamb of God who was slain to take away the sins of the world. And in Romans 3.23, Paul makes it explicitly clear. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Your only hope for forgiveness, redemptive reset, and to begin again is in Jesus Christ, in him alone. 
And now we look at this passage from Hebrews chapter 10 that really ties us together. I love it. Lindsay, if you could put it up there. Every priest who stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never really take away sins, the author is referring back to all the Old Testament Levitical sacrificial system. When Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's finished. <laughs> and waiting from that time until all of his enemies should be made a footstool. This is one of my favorite verses in scripture, verse 14. I've got thousands of favorites, but this is one of them. For by one single sacrifice, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Not perfect. We're still messy. But in God's eyes, we have been perfected for all time. <laughs> Do you know the power of that reset moment? The ultra, ultimate sin bearer, Jesus Christ, not only bore the penalty for your sin, but he removed it as far as the east is from the west. In the scapegoat, I love this, it says that he was sent into the wilderness. That language in Hebrew literally means a land that is cut off. It's completely removed. And that's what our sin does to us. Isaiah 59.2 says that our iniquities separate us from God. But the scapegoat was separated and sent off into a land cut off so that those who have faith in him can be brought near and be returned to God. It was laid upon him the sin of us all. Now the ceremony and this day of atonement of the scapegoats, it hasn't been practiced since AD 70, after the fall of Jerusalem, but there's still a, a large religion in our world that celebrates Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, hoping that there can be ceremonial cleansing, clean, cleansing that comes from their religious participation. But only when we learn the true nature of redemption what scripture teaches clearly, that those sacrifices can never really take away sin. There's only one that can. It's not scapegoats. It's not a goat or a bull that was sacrificed, but only the Lamb of God. It's not even your own work or your own moral performance that can balance the scales of justice. Only the work of Jesus. And that brings us to a place of real application. What do we do with this? You're going to talk about this in your groups, and we hope that you dig deep. If you're not in a group, we want you in a group. But the fir first point of application that I thought of is that we've got to humble ourselves, and we've got to exalt God's means of grace. We've got to believe that it's by faith alone that we can have a redemptive reset. We've got to repent even of our own good works and put our faith wholly in Jesus Christ and his work We've got to believe that what Christ has done is enough. We've got to forgive ourselves. And we have to forgive others. You know how hard it is to forgive other people who have sinned against you? It's difficult. You know how hard it is to forgive yourself for your own sins and shortcomings? It's probably more difficult. You know how hard it is for a holy and just God to look upon you and forgive you it's very easy because the price has been paid in Jesus Christ. If a holy and just God can forgive you of your sins, then my friend, you can forgive yourself and you can forgive others. Thirdly, 
we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. And when you read Hebrews 9 and 10 in preparation to talk about Leviticus 16, you're going to see that that's the culmination, it's the climax. Since we have a high priest who's gone before us, whose blood is better than the blood of goats or rams or bulls, and the curtain has been torn, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. You're forgiven. You're redeemed. You're cleansed. Live like it. Live as a child of God who's received the love of your father, who has come into your room and cleaned you off and cleaned up all your circumstances and holds you in his arms and gives you a chance to begin again. Don't reject that love. Live in it confidently and boldly. And finally, do the difficult work of repentance and discover the depth of God's grace. And just as a personal testimony, I'll end where I started. I'm committed to be a man who explores the depths of God's grace. And I am continuing to take things to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. And I, I told the guys in, in a discipleship group I'm in, I need you to make me a more faithful man and follower of Jesus, responding to God's grace. I need you to help me. In the way, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 is my goal. <laughs> I want to walk in love as Christ has loved me. Be imitators of God. Walk in love as Christ has loved you. He gave himself for you. I want to give myself away. I don't want to take anymore. And we need community. We got to be connected, committed to God's word and to God's people, just as Kevin said, and that's the whole purpose of this. So our next reset gathering is October 19th, and I hope that you do what's best for your own spiritual growth and development and invite a friend that isn't connected to Christ or to community and continue to walk in the love and the redemptive work of Christ, embracing this reset moment in your groups, going deeper and getting to know one another in relationship and knowing Christ. We are not in this because we have nothing else to do. We're in this because our great goal is to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. And we need one another. And it's freedom and opportunity. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you haven't put your faith fully in his work as the Lamb who not only takes away the penalty of your sin, uh, but also cleanses you from all unrighteousness, then don't leave here without doing that. If you have done that, then dadgummit. Have faith. You know, Alex said, just have a mustard seed. Believe. Believe the reality of the atonement. And Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reality of the reset that we have in redemption. Thank you for the beautiful picture that we have in the Day of Atonement and these two goats. Thank you that our great redemption is found really in your work as the Lamb, who is the ultimate sin bearer, slain for our sins, whose blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Help us to be a people, Lord, who believe. Help us with our unbelief. Help us to live freely in forgiveness as we forgive others. Help us, Lord, to approach your throne of grace with confidence and live as your children. We thank you for your love and pray that you'd help us to know your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.